great singing tonight. Once again, it's good to be back with everyone. I, by my count, I have missed six services, so I've got six to make up. So it's going to take us a while tonight. No, actually, I'm not going to preach a very long message, so I'm, I'll try not to keep you too long. I'd like you to open your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5. And it's been, I think, about three weeks since we were in Ephesians, and I hope you remember what we were talking about. I kind of had to refresh myself today as I was writing another message for next month from this series, and I had to refresh myself to see exactly where we are, but we're in Ephesians chapter 5, and tonight we'll be studying verses 3 through 6, and we've spent a great deal of time Uh, In the first part of this chapter, the first two verses especially, talking about being followers of God. And Paul introduces that concept to us as followers of God. And the word that he actually used there is a word that means imitators or mimics of God. And there's a great deal of doctrinal truth that we were able to explore in those first two verses. And that shows us that Christ really is the example for our lives and one that we are to follow. You see, the whole matter of Christianity is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of people who are confused about that because they think that they can start to apply certain Christian principles. They can read some things in the Bible and they can learn some things that they ought to do. And they begin to try to apply Christian principles and therefore they think they are Christian. But really, nobody's a Christian unless he has a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything that God has designed this world to be, every application that we find in the Scripture, the doctrines that we preach, all of it concerns Jesus. And so it's no wonder that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The world would have no meaning. We have no purpose if not for Jesus. Well, as we come to these next verses... There's a very uh, definite connection that we see here with the reason to be Christ imitators. And Paul sets this forth in some terms that are unusual for the natural man. Doesn't quite fit in with the natural man's thinking in the way that Paul puts that. So we're going to talk about this tonight as we consider the subject, a warning of wrath. And this is part number one of this sermon. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's word from Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go back up to verse number 1 so we can get the full thought And we'll read down to verse number six. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named amongst you as become a saint, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks." For this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And again, the subject tonight is a warning of wrath. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be back in your house tonight. And Lord, we just praise your name for the people of Berean Baptist Church. Thank you, Lord, for uh, all the wonderful people that we get to minister to and what they mean to us. And we're thankful to be here tonight. Bless in this message and we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul is a writer who is always presenting us with contrast. Throughout this book of Ephesians, he's given us different kinds of contrast. 
If we go back to chapter, chapter number 2, Paul presented us with a contrast there. I mean, after totally annihilating any self-hope that a person could have for salvation, after telling us all that we're depraved sinners, that, that we're dead in sins, and there's no way that we can come to God, he came to verse number 4 of chapter 2, and he gave us a, a, just a vivid contrast that shows us that our hope is immediately restored. He said, but God, and he talked about how that uh, God has changed everything, how he's regenerated us, brought us us to life so that we could believe the gospel message. And then he goes on in that second chapter and he explains further about the the life-giving grace of God. Then he came, came back to that theme a little bit later on in the chapter and he spoke specifically about how the Gentile Christians were foreigners or aliens to the commonwealth of Israel. They, they weren't included in God's promises to his chosen nation of Israel and that left the Gentiles on the outside without any hope. But then he brings us another contrast and he says, but God has changed that. God has done something. God has remedied the situation so that now Gentiles can be saved Gentiles can be brought into the covenant of grace and they can receive all the promises that were given to God's chosen people of Israel. Then in chapter 4, we saw that Paul brings a contrast again. He talked about the ignorance that people have when they are without Christ. And he speaks about how that all and many folks have given themselves over to practice all sorts of ungodliness. But then he turns to the new Christians and he says to them, But ye have not so learned Christ. And so over and over again, he presents us with contrast. And that runs throughout his writings. Well, here we come to chapter number 5, and we also see that there's a contrast. We see this again, because he encourages Christians, the people at Ephesus, to be followers of God. And then he goes on to the contrast and contrast in verse number 3, and he says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints." Now, I want you to pay particular attention to the word saints in that verse because that's really the key to this passage. So let's talk about, first of all, the perversion of saints. And I want to remind you again that Paul's usage of the word saint is nothing at all like we see in the religious world today. Now, people today will tell you that a saint is somebody who's been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. This is somebody that's dead, and they've decided to elevate them to the position of a saint, and so now they can be worshipped, they can uh, be intercessors for us, we can pray to them. But the Word of God has absolutely nothing at all to say about that kind of a saint. We don't find that in scriptures anywhere, that a saint is designated by some church and that's somebody that you pray to. Rather, the Bible teaches us that a saint can be living or may be dead, but a saint is somebody who has put his personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that means, of course, that all of us in this room tonight that have believed in Christ, we are all designated as saints. And I suppose that perhaps the best way to describe this or the best designation to help us understand the word saints is that saints are people who are citizens of heaven. If you're a citizen of America, you're an American, American citizen. And if you are a citizen of heaven, that's what you're called. You're called a saint. And again, all of us who have been saved, we are saints. And so we all are right now 
citizens of heaven. Now, if you're a saint, regardless of whether you're living or dead, you are a citizen of heaven. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul wrote, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word conversation there, we've talked about it before. It's an old English word. But here in this particular usage, it means citizenship. And so if you're saved, you're a citizen of heaven even though you're still living in this world. Now, that's very important for us to understand because that concept is the key to this particular passage. It's integral to Paul's argument. Now, he says in a but in verse number three, and when he says that word but there, what he's doing is making a difference between citizens of the world and citizens of heaven, which he calls the saints. Saint comes from the word hagios. It means to be holy. And of course, the great end of our salvation is that we would be holy. If we go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, this familiar scripture, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, and listen to this part, that we should be holy and without blame before him. Now, I've stated this over and over throughout our study, that salvation is for God's glory before it's for our good. And only when a person has been made holy and he's a follower of righteousness is God glorified in that person's life. Now, what we tend to think of and what the natural man thinks of is the value of morality and decency is for our good and it's for the good of society if we are good, moral, decent people. Well, of course, that's true and we ought to be good and moral for those reasons, but that's not the primary reason. Man wants these virtues for himself because of what it does for him, but God wants to see those things in us because of what it does for God. Because what God has done is called out a peculiar people, a special people that are to be holy and we are a people who have been reserved for his name and we are to be a people that is like him in character. And so for that reason, God does not want a perverse people. It's uncharacteristic of saints. It's uncharacteristic of a saint to be a perverse person. And that's because we're all citizens of heaven. Now you think about that for a moment. Right now, there are lots of people, of course, who've died and they've gone to heaven. And in heaven, they have no sin. There's no sin in heaven. There are no effects of sin in heaven. All those citizens who are there now have been glorified. They are in Christ. And folks, we are also citizens of that heavenly country. And when we sin against God, we do not display the characteristics of good citizens of heaven. Now notice what Paul, how he puts this in verse number three. He mentions fornication, all uncleanness and covetousness. Then he says, let it not be once named among you as becoming saints. In other words... Being a sinner or living in sin is not becoming to a saint. Now, we could think of it like this. Sin is something that's out of place for a Christian. Now, you understand that very well. Uh, If I decide tonight after church that I'm going to go hit the bars in town, well, you would say, well, that's not becoming for a pastor. I mean, that's not really what a pastor ought to be doing, going out to the bars around town. That's no place for a preacher. If on Sunday morning that I decide that I'm going to get up in front of you and I'm going to preach my sermon in a pair of swim trunks and a tie-dye shirt, you would say, well, that's not very becoming of the position of a preacher. 
And that's one of the reasons why when I come here on Sunday morning, I put my suit on, I put my tie on, because I believe there's some respectability that belongs to the position. That, that's not becoming of a preacher of the gospel of Christ. So this is the idea. Our reason to act holy and righteously is primarily because we are children of Almighty God. And all of our actions reflect upon Him. And so citizens who bring a reproach upon the name of their God are reproach upon also the heavenly country, and they're not good citizens of heaven. Now, here's something else that we need to note about Paul's language, because we see here, he doesn't say, don't commit fornication. Well, of course you shouldn't forget, uh, you shouldn't commit fornication. He doesn't say, don't be unclean, and you shouldn't be unclean. Don't be covetous, he doesn't say that, and you shouldn't be covetous. What he does here is to put stronger emphasis upon all these things because he says in this verse, don't let it even be named among you. Now, most Bible expositors agree about this is that Paul need not tell us that we don't want ought to be or ought not to be fornicators. He doesn't need to tell us that we don't need to be unclean. Doesn't need to tell us that we shouldn't commit uh, covetous acts. That goes without saying. But he goes further and he nails it down even more by saying, don't even let these sins be named about you. Don't you even talk about them in such a way that you might lessen the seriousness of what you do in those things. You see, these are not joking matters. And when thoughts of these types of things come into our head, we ought not to let those thoughts get out. We ought not to speak of these things lightly. And the reason we shouldn't is because these things impugn the character of God. And sin is totally abhorrent to our righteous God. Now, some people believe that when Jesus came into the world, that his purpose was to come and relax for us the laws that are in the Old Testament. And so people will say, well, I sure am glad that we don't live under Old Testament law. That was so hard. I mean, it was so hard to live under all those laws that Moses gave. I'm glad we don't live under that anymore. Well, in fact, Jesus did not come to lessen the force of the law. He came to strengthen the law. Jesus' standards are even higher than Old Testament law. Now, in the Old Testament, as you know, the Bible said you shouldn't commit fornication, not to commit adultery. But we come to the New Testament, and you remember what Jesus said about it? He said, even if you think about it in your heart, that you have committed adultery already. And so when Paul says here, don't do it, I mean, he doesn't even have to say don't do it because that goes without saying. He says, don't even name it. And so becoming a Christian and trusting the Lord will never lighten the burden of keeping God's laws. What did Jesus say? Matthew five seventeen. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then what did Paul say? Romans 3, verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. So one thing that we need to learn as God's people is that the requirements for being a Christian are far more stringent in the New Testament than they are for those Old Testament saints. God has put a higher demand upon us. Now, let's look specifically at what he mentions in these verses. The first thing he talks about is the problem of immorality. The word fornication is kind of an interesting word because that is the same word from which we get pornography. Now, usually, fornication in the Bible refers to sexual sins outside of marriage. 
And it, it's interesting to us that Ephesians chapter 5 is, in fact, one of the greatest New Testament passages, one of the greatest Bible passages about the institution of marriage. These Ephesians lived in a very sexual society. And folks, sexual activity outside of marriage has always been the bane of society. Whenever you find that the family breaks down, when marriage breaks down, the inevitable result of that is the destruction of society. Now, this thing that we have today in our colleges, our universities, even in our high schools today, this thought of free love and do all that, do whatever you want to do, all it does is to contribute to the downfall of our society. The next thing that he talks about is the problem of impurity. And he uses the next word here, which is uncleanness. And that means impurity. Now, this word actually is more encompassing than fornication because Paul is attacking even more heinous types of sins. This would include things like homosexuality and things like prostitution. Both of those were very prevalent in the Ephesian society. You may remember when we first started into the book of Ephesians, we talked about these things. But one of the things that was going on even in the religion of those Ephesian people was that in their heathen temples, they had prostitutes, both men and women prostitutes. And so sex and all those kinds of things was very integrated, all tied up in the religion that they, that they practiced. Now, the peculiar thing about the Greek society was that homosexuality was to consider to be quite normal. And people believed that it was possible that you could even put high moral standards into place and at the same time practice homosexuality. And folks, don't we see the same kind of thing happening in our society today? Normalizing homosexuality is one of the big agendas of of the gay and lesbian alliance. This is what they're trying to do. Let's have gay marriages. Let's allow uh, gays to enjoy the same spousal benefits as heterosexual couples. Let's treat their marriages just like other types of marriages. And we even allow, in some cases, the teaching of homosexuality to young school kids. Now, what Paul is saying here is that what's normal for the Greeks... And what's normal for a perverted society should not be practiced. And further, he goes on and says, we shouldn't even whisper these kinds of things among ourselves. That's how perverse they are. Now, the third thing that he talks about here is the problem of insolence. Now, I want to lump these next group of sins under the heading of insolence. But before we do that, I want to briefly mention something else he talks about. And that's the sin of covetousness. Greed is something that's creeping more and more into our American society today. It hasn't been that long, just a couple of years or so, when companies like Enron uh, uh, and the corporate scandal of WorldCom, those things took place. And what was the reason that that happened? Well, it was because the the men who were higher-ups in those companies became very greedy. And so they didn't really care if what what they did even destroyed people's lives. They did it for greed. And so we chastise those kind of people and think, well, how greedy they are. Uh, what, what terrible greed that they showed by doing such a terrible, wicked thing as they did. And we become disgusted by that. But then we turn around and we look at our so-called legitimate mean, means of funding many of our government programs. And do you know what it is? Greed. The government feeds upon the greed of the people in order to run some of their programs. There wouldn't be any lottery if there wasn't greed. We've decided that we are going to help 
the American Indians by allowing them to build casinos. And so what we're doing is teaching and promoting greed, and that's against God. And Christians ought not to have any part of that. Well, you might think, well, is it all right for a Christian to drop a few quarters into a slot machine? Is it all right for me to buy a lottery ticket every now and then? What's that going to hurt? I mean, after all, it really doesn't mean anything, does it? Well, not according to Paul. He says, don't even let it be named. He said, don't just don't do it. He said, don't you even talk about doing it. Don't even entertain the thought of doing it. And that's because you're a saint. You're a citizen of heaven. You ought not to have a part of it. But let me go on here to to insolence. Insolence means insulting and arrogant speech. Now, here we find that Paul goes right back to what he talked about in the end of chapter 4 when he was speaking of evil communication. And he mentioned... Uh, mentioned that that kind of problem in the end of that chapter. And what the word filthiness here is referring to the same types of things, but this specifically means things like telling off-color stories, telling dirty jokes. Have you ever watched, uh, have you watched lately some of the television sitcoms? What do they do? Well, they like to take and turn every phrase that they can, almost every phrase that you hear, into some kind of sexual innuendo. And the success of many of the TV shows today is how much they can relate everything that's going on to sexual situations. Have you ever thought about how uh, most innocent phrases that we use in everyday speech can be twisted into something that is immoral, used in an immoral way? A few weeks ago, I was telling you about, and we read about it in the paper, about this girl in, in high school who was expelled here for saying, that's so gay. Well, we never would have thought a few years ago that people would take a word like gay and turn that into something that stands for this despicable act of sodomy. Then Paul goes on and he says, foolish talking. Now, this one is a real easy one for you to remember. Just listen to what I'm about to say. The phrase foolish talking is made out of two Greek words. One of the words means moron. And the other word is one that you're kind of familiar with. It's the word, word uh, logos. And you've heard me preach enough times about the divine logos. And logos actually means word. Now, this word in the Greek is morologio. And what it actually means is moronic words. Now, I want you to understand the context of this. What, what is Paul saying? Well, he's saying that people who use filthy language, who have profanity-laced language, and tell off-color stories, and spend their time dealing with sexual innuendo, you know what he says? You are a moron. I've often thought that. That people that have no more than a four-letter vocabulary are nothing but morons. Now, folks, people that send their kids to school today are wasting their time and their money when their kids come out with a vocabulary of four-letter words. That's not God's vocabulary. It's not the vocabulary of heaven. So I ask you a question here about this. Is it okay, then, for a Christian to let one of those words slip into his language every now and then? Maybe when you get angry, when you're around somebody, and normally maybe you don't talk like that, but you get upset about something, or maybe just want to smart off about something, and so you let one of those little four-letter words creep into your vocabulary. Is it okay to do that? Not according to Paul. He says, don't even let it be named among you. Don't practice this. Then he goes on, and he talks about jesting. 
And what this means is coarse jesting. Here's what one commentator said. He said, this means jokes or talk with unsavory hidden meanings. To talk about something, to joke about it, to make it a frequent subject of conversation is to introduce it into your mind and to bring you closer to actually doing it. It is always dangerous to joke about sin. John Stott summed it up, these three different words like this. He said, all three refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in dirty conversation. Now, let me mention something else in, convic- in conjunction with this. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes a very valid point in relation to the foolishness that goes on in Christian speech when he says that a lot of this has crept in or spilled in over into the pulpit. Now, I've read a lot of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I don't recall in anything that I've read that he's written, and most of what you, books that you pick up from him are, are sermons that he's preached, And I don't recall ever reading and even one sermon where Martin Lloyd-Jones told a joke. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't tell jokes because perhaps he did somewhere. But it doesn't appear, though, that his messages were ever built around stories and jokes. In fact, if you go back much further in history, back beyond his time, now he's, he's fairly recent uh, uh, in, in the latter half of the 20th century, but let's go back a little bit further and look at all the great preachers. I'm telling you, folks, the Puritans were not Jack Benny types. They didn't tell jokes when they got up in the pulpit. They were very serious about what they did. But that doesn't go over very well today, does it? Exposition of Scripture is not what you hear very much in pulpits today. Because if a fellow gets up and preaches and he doesn't have a good joke to tell, and if he doesn't have all kinds or hundreds of anecdotal stories to tell, then he's not a very good preacher. And so preaching today seems to be jokes and storytelling tied together with a Scripture or two. Well, that's not how you preach, and that's, that's not exposition of the Word of God. Now, there's nothing wrong, I don't think, with a story that has an application that fits a sermon. Uh, But when the message that a preacher gets up to preach is a story, and that's where he draws his messages from, then he's not preaching the Word of God. But if you don't have a joke to tell, you don't have a story to tell, then people don't think that you have a good message. And I know that's even true sometimes right here in our own church because people go out the door and the thing they comment about is the joke you told and nothing about the sermon that you preach. But I do like this. There, there was a, a visitor who came to our services a, a few weeks ago. And uh, as he went out the door, he was talking about a scripture that I had used in the Sunday morning sermon. And the scripture was in Hebrews 12, verse number 2, where it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him dis- uh, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. And he was talking to me about that, and he said, you know something? He said, we concentrate mostly on the word joy in that verse and not on these words, despising the shame. Now, that happened to be one of the points in the Sunday morning sermon, despising the shame. And so he said, I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to do a word study on despising the shame. And when he told me that, I just stood back and I thought, wow, that's how people ought to react to a message. And that's to think about what they've heard, apply the message, see how it works out, and just see what the Word of God has to say. Now, there was somebody who didn't come to church for entertainment. He came to hear the Word of God. Now, guess what, folks? I just told you a story. 
So it's all right to tell a story that fits in or makes an application with the message. So Martin Lloyd-Jones' point, though, was that many preachers have no good story to tell that does fit in or makes an application with the Scriptures. And so all of this foolish and moronic talking that we do today needs to be dispensed with because that does not become a Christian. It's perversion. Now let's notice something here, and that is that Paul doesn't leave us here with the negative side. He always has a positive application. When he gets done with the negatives, he always comes with a positive application. So he ends this particular verse. I believe it's verse number four. Yes, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. He ends that verse with rather, but rather giving of thanks. And so in other words, we're to get rid of all the rotten junk and we're to replace that with a good wholesome activity which is to give God thanks. Now have you ever thought why maybe you haven't even considered this passage or thought very much about it at all but why would Paul insert the word thanks at the end of verse number four? Why at that particular juncture? I mean why doesn't he go on down to a place that looks a little bit more appropriate to us which will be down about verse number nine and put give thanks at the end of that verse? That would say, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Give thanks. Makes sense to put it there. But why does he go back up here and put it in verse number 4? Well, it's been suggested that he inserts it there to mean that we should give thanks because when we reverse the things that he's just spoken about, when we do the opposite of those things, then the opposite thing that we do can be very positive for us in its influence. Now, let's go back to the beginning of verse number three, and we're going to look at the opposites of this. So I'm going to call this next part fixing the problem. How do you fix the problem of those things that we talked about there? How do you fix the problem, first of all, of immorality and impurity? Well, here's how you fix it. Number one, give thanks for sexual purity. Now, good Christians have received the moniker of prudes. We're called prudes. Because evidently we think that all sex is bad. Now that's what the world says. Well, you're against our jokes. You're against our entertainment. You think that all sex is bad. And so they say, what you really need to do is express yourself. It's a natural thing to do. We've been created as sexual creatures, and so sex is not bad. Well, anybody who understands God's word properly knows that sex is not bad. We don't protest sex. We protest the perversion of sex and the way these people carry it out. Now, perhaps we get that prudish description because usually when we talk about these things, we do have to talk about it in a negative way. And that's because it's been so perverted by people of the world. And so we just constantly have to talk about these things in a negative way. Well, sex isn't bad. That's something we ought to be thankful for. You see, when sex is proper in marriage, it enables people to be so close that there's nothing more intimate to that person except fellowship with God. There's nothing more intimate than that. A few weeks ago on Mother's Day, uh, we talked about uh, the highest expression of human love. And what is the highest expression of human love? It's love in marriage. So making love in marriage, that's God's gift. And we ought to thank God for that. So if we do the opposite of what Paul mentions there in verse number 3 and we give thanks for sexual purity, then we're on the right path. Now, how do we fix the problem of greed? Well, we fix that problem by giving thanks for material possessions. Now, sexual 
uh, purity covered the problems of fornication and cleanness. And giving thanks for material possessions covers the sins of covetousness. When you're thankful, that will mean that you're content with what you have. In Hebrews, Paul said, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You ought to know this already. Money never satisfies. Money does not satisfy anybody. Now, some of the most miserable people in the world are people who have money. And without exception, every time that a Christian person gets greedy, it will lead to his unhappiness and it will lead him away from service to God. The joy, or rather the job, becomes the focus. Having all kinds of toys to play with on the weekend, that becomes the focus. People get greedy and that leads them away from God. And God tells us those things are never going to bring lasting happiness. What God says... Be content with what I have given you because not only do you have the material possessions that I give, he says, you also have me. I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that you have to give up all material possessions. Now, some people think that a Christian can't be a real Christian. He can't be close to God. He can't be a real servant unless he takes a vow of poverty. If he takes a vow of poverty, that's going to make you a better Christian. But taking a vow of greed or taking a vow of poverty, either one, is not going to make you a better Christian. God's not unhappy with people who have material things because God gives those things. But he wants us to be content with what he's given. And what God gives, you need to understand this. God gives it all. And the resources that God gives us are for the purpose of helping other people. But we're so concerned about ourselves and what we have, we never think about helping anybody else. So how do you fix the problem of greed? You give thanks for the material things that God has given you, and you be content with what you have. Now, the third thing here, how do we fix the problem of insolence? And the way we fix that is to give thanks for truthful expression. Thank God that he's given you the truth that you can speak with words. How would you like to be born like an animal? Anybody want to be born like an animal? What, what if you really did come from a monkey and you still maintained or retained all of your monkey characteristics? Now, I, I've seen some monkeys that act like people and some of them act better than people. But, you know, they say that chimpanzees are, are really intelligent. They're really smart. And as I said, sometimes they act like people. But you can take the smartest chimpanzee that you can find anywhere and you can't teach him to speak. So thank God that you weren't born a chimpanzee, or even worse than that, thank God you weren't born a stupid cat or something. So God has given people, he's given men the unique ability. He can communicate with speech, and most gloriously, what God has done is we can communicate the truths of salvation with speech. The Bible says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And what did Paul write in Romans chapter 10? He said, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. You know what the word preach means? It means to proclaim. means to cry out. It means to deliver a convincing argument by persuasion. So when we speak with jesting and moronic speech, 
what we are doing is devaluing the worth of speech. And when you devalue speech, then you're no better than an animal. You might as well be born as an animal when you devalue speech. And sometimes you'd be better off if you couldn't speak because of some of the things that you say. So why do we thank God? Well, we thank him because we can speak. And we thank him because we can speak words of truth. We can express ourselves in such a way that we can point other people to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is it that becomes a Christian? Beautiful feet that carry the message of salvation to a lost and dying world. Now, let me finish the sermon, this part of the sermon, part number one, by emphasizing one more time that this was written to remind us all that we are blood-bought saints of God. We're God's children. It's not a trivial matter to be involved in these things. Whether or not we display godly characteristics is a very important thing for God's people. So immorality, impurity, insolence, those are not marks of a saint. And those things are not going to be allowed in the heavenly kingdom. Now, what we'll find out in part number two of the sermon is that God specifically forbids persons who practice such things from entering into the heavenly kingdom. So as we get into part number two, we're going to talk about, is it really possible for a person to be a Christian and the Lord not be the Lord of his life? We'll talk about that in part number two. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. We thank you for the people who have come out. Bless this message to them. Uh, Lord, we pray that each of us might take this to our hearts and we might understand that godly characteristics are how we show that we are citizens of the heavenly country. We thank you for Jesus Christ who saved our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.